Jack, heard you did a good job last week. Didn't stand in my chair. <laughs> Betty Gabriel caught me coming in and said, with you gone last week, we had revival. <laughs> She's an encourager. I'm grateful for that. I grew up in a Christian home. My father was a deacon. My mother taught Sunday school. But when I got to be about 13 years old, I began to drop out of church. And by the time I was 14 or 15, I did not go to church at all. Did not go back to church until I was married and had a child. I was talking with West Church about that. I said, Wes, how common is that? How many kids who are brought up in church drop out? And he said about 70 to 80 percent. Now, that does not mean that they stay out, but that they drop out for a period of time. As concerning as that might be, it's not a new phenomenon. In fact, as we look at the history of the Hebrew people, we discover that there were those constant stages of being close to God and then being away from God. There would be a generation that would be dedicated to God and then a generation that followed that would go into idolatry. It seems strange because the Lord had so blessed them. The Lord had given them freedom. He had provided for their needs. He performed miracles. He did all those things. And yet there were those times when they went away from the Lord. Why was that? Well, possibly it was because they were simply ungrateful for the Lord's blessings, or maybe they felt that there was no retribution from God for what they did. But that also is common with our own country, which is a mystery to me. You see, the, the Lord has so blessed America. I mean, he really has blessed this nation. Our country was built on the foundation of the Word of God. And the Lord has protected us from enemies, and he has provided for our needs. And yet today there seems to be a growing desire to remove God from our society. And so there are no prayers in public school and no religious symbols in public places or at public events. And even some businesses who want to make money on Christmas no longer say Merry Christmas. How do those things happen? How is it that a generation of people, a group of people, can be committed to God and then they are followed by a generation that is not? That's what I want us to look at today. Take your Bibles, turn with me to Judges chapter 2, beginning in verse number 6. When Joshua had dismissed the people, the sons of Israel went each to his inheritance to possess the land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who survived Joshua, who had seen all the great work of the Lord which he had done for Israel. Then Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110. And they buried him in the territory of his inheritance in Timnath-Heres, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of Mount Gash. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers, and there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord, nor yet the work which he had done for Israel. There are some things I want you to look with me at this passage of Scripture and maybe we can understand this a little bit better. One is that every generation chooses for themselves who will be their God. 
Every generation chooses their God. In fact, if you look there in verse number 7 at Joshua's generation, and the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who survived Joshua, who had seen all the great work of the Lord which he had done for Israel. Now, Joshua and his generation served the Lord, Jehovah God. Why? Well, the Bible says there because they had seen the great work of the Lord. So they served the Lord then because they had seen the involvement of God, because they had seen the great work of God. You recall when they came to the promised land that the first obstacle to going in and possessing the promised land was Jericho. And so the Lord told them what to do concerning Jericho because Jericho had to be conquered if they were going into the promised land. The Lord told them what to do, and so they marched around the city, they blew the trumpets, they shouted, and the walls fell down flat. They saw that. They saw that miracle that God had provided for them. And then when Joshua was leading the army against the Amorites, they needed more time to complete the job. And so the Bible says that the Lord caused the sun to stand still. In fact, the Scripture says in Joshua 10, verse number 13 and 14, So the sun stood still, and the moon stopped until the nation avenged themselves of their enemies. There was no day like that before it or after it when the Lord listened to the voice of a man. They saw that. So why then did that generation commit themselves to the Lord? Because they had seen the great works of God. They had walked in the power of God's great works. But what about the generation that followed them? Look down at verse number 10b. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord, nor yet the work which he had done for Israel. How can that be? How how can a generation of people walk in the power of God witness the miracles of God, and then the Bible says, but the next generation knew not the Lord. How does that happen? How does that happen? Well, I think there are a couple of things. I'm sure there are others, but a couple of things that comes to my mind. When you have a generation that walks with the Lord and then a generation following that does not, how does that come about? Well, I I think that one thing that happens is that security replaces sacrifice. You see, when something is established in the early days of something, there's always sacrifice. In fact, Tom Brokaw wrote a book about the generation in World War II, referring to them as the greatest generation because of the sacrifices that they had made. Anything is established through sacrifice. There's always sacrifice. But what happens? Well, the generation who sacrificed oftentimes does not want their kids to have to, what? Sacrifice. And so they take away from them the very thing that made them the greatest generation because they don't want them to sacrifice. And so the generation that follows is not nearly so interested and willing to sacrifice because they are more interested in security. Gary Enrig wrote, The second generation has a natural tendency to accept the status quo, and to lose the vision 
of the first generation. Isn't that what happens? You have a generation that has a vision, and they are willing to sacrifice for that vision. But then following them is a generation who loses the vision. Now, we've seen that in our Baptist schools. I was thinking about the number of Baptist schools we have that are no longer Baptist schools. They were established by Baptist people who sacrificed to support them in their inception. I mean, they sacrificed. Now, then, as time went by and the school has more money and the percentage that is being given from those Baptists is not as great anymore, so they're not needed and they lose the vision of that generation that sacrificed. I think that's one of the things that happens, is that we become more concerned about security than a willingness to sacrifice. Something else is that political correctness, which I consider to be an incredibly dangerous uh, condition of our day, but political correctness replaces the Bible. You see, the, the first generation, and then early on, we are very concerned and we're very committed to the Bible, the Word of God. We believe the Bible is the Word of God. But then after a while, as time goes on, we are really more interested in the values of society rather than the values stated in the Word of God. And there are denominations now, you're aware of this, denominations now that are struggling with issues. Are those scriptural issues that they're struggling with? I doubt it. And the reason I say that is because some of those denominations have been around for 1,500 years. Surely, had there been an error of position, someone would have discovered it along the way. And so I think that the, the, the temptation we have is that we are more concerned about being politically correct. What does society say? Well, folks, that's not the issue. It's what does the Word of God say? See, we are to stand on the Word of God. Now, I remember growing up and, and the, you know, we pretty well believed that Jesus was the only way of salvation. That's what the Scripture says. There is none other name given under heaven among men whereby we must be saved. But the exclusivity of that is not politically correct today. And so people tell us that there are many ways. The problem we have is that Oprah has a greater impact on theology today than the Bible does. And there are more people concerned about what she says or believe what she says than what Scripture says. So each generation has to choose who is their God. And then it becomes their responsibility to pass on their faith to the generation that follows. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, the Bible says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And you shall teach them diligently to your sons. You see, Israel failed to do that. They failed to pass on their beliefs to the generation that followed. Now, I know that there are some of you who are parents and you desperately want to do that. You understand that uh, your children are growing up in a world that does not believe the things you believe. And so you want to pass on those values that you hold. How can you do that? Well, parents, first of all, you're going to have to spend time with your kids. You know, Harvard University did a study and concluded that the father in the United States 
spends less time with his children than any nation in the world except for England. You're going to have to spend some time with those kids. If you want to pass on your beliefs, you're going to have to spend some time. You're going to have to communicate what you believe. Josh McDowell said, rules without relationships lead to rebellion. Did you hear that? Rules without relationship lead to rebellion. See, we have to have a relationship with our kids. We have to spend the time with them, and then we have to establish a relationship with them. But now here is the good news. You can influence your children with your values. In fact, George Barnett did a study. He asked kids who were growing up in the church who was the greatest influence on their life. Twenty-seven percent said their pastor. Forty-eight percent said their Christian faith. Fifty-one percent said their friends. And seventy-eight percent said their parents. You have tremendous opportunity. Tremendous opportunity to instill the values of God's Word in your children, but you're going to have to spend some time with them and you're going to have to communicate those values to them. They don't get them by osmosis. You're going to have to spend some time with them. Michael Stark said the first generation is holy. The second generation is religious. And the third generation is godless. Every generation chooses their God, and then they pass on their beliefs. Now, let's look for a minute at the characteristics of a second generation. Understand, I'm talking here about generations. I'm not talking about individuals. Now, I say that because I know there are parents who really pray for their kids. They bring their kids to church. They do all those things that they are supposed to do, and the kid still turns out bad. I know that. As a matter of fact, in Ezekiel chapter 18, if you want to read that passage of Scripture, it tells a story about a bad father who had a good child and a good father who had a bad child. And the point of that chapter is that there comes a time in a person's life when they make their own decisions. So we're not talking about individuals here. We are talking about the characteristics of a generation. The second generation, the Bible says, was unaware of God's involvement. Now, again, verse number 10. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers, that Joshua and his generation. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord, nor yet the work which he had done for Israel. Now, the first generation, Joshua's generation, was keenly aware of God's involvement. They had seen the miracles, they had seen the protection, they had seen the provision, so they were keenly aware of God's involvement. The second generation, the Bible says, did not know God. The word know that is used there literally means to be acquainted with, to have experience with. They were not acquainted with God, nor did they have experience with God. That's the generation that followed Joshua. Joshua and his generation, they knew the Lord. They were faithful to the Lord. They walked with the Lord. The generation that followed them did not know the Lord. See, we're always just one generation away from atheism. Always. Now, not only does this happen with nations, it also happens with uh, individual families. I can give you an example of that, the story of, uh, in the Old Testament of Eli. Do you recall Eli? He was the priest of God. All right, now, Eli in the Old Testament was God's priest 
And yet the Bible says that his sons did not know the Lord. In 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse number 12, Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. Now this is the only other time in the Bible when this phrase is used, that they did not know the Lord. Here concerning the generation that followed Joshua, and then concerning the sons of Eli, that they did not. How in the world can you do that? How can you be the, the, the Lord's priest? And your kids not know the Lord? How, how, can, how can that happen? That you can be the priest of God and your children not know the Lord? Well, I've read that passage of Scripture. It's in First uh, Samuel chapter 2. And there's some things about Eli that you notice in there concerning his sons, even though he was the priest of God. There's some things about it. First of all, he complained about his son's behavior, but he did not discipline them for it. The Scripture says in 1 Samuel 2.23, And he said to them, to his sons, Why do you do such things, the evil things that I hear from all these people? Boys, why are you all acting like that? Why do you do these things? Don't you know you're not supposed to do those things? So he sort of whines about it, he complains about it, but he does not discipline his sons. Then the Bible says that he honored his sons above God. The Scripture says in 1 Samuel 2.29, Why do you kick, and this is the Lord speaking to him, Why do you kick at my sacrifice and at my offering which I have commanded in my dwelling and honor your sons above me? Why are you honoring your sons above me? Parents, now that's a place you've got to be careful because we love our kids and, and we want our kids to have certain things and so forth. But if you're not careful, the danger is, is that you honor your children above God. Third thing is that he did not rebuke them for their sin. In 1 Samuel 3.13, For I have told him that I am about to judge his house forever for the iniquity which he knew because his sons brought a curse on themselves, and he did not rebuke them. The uh, truth is, Eli was a priest, but he failed his sons. He did not pass on to them his faith, his walk with God, his relationship to God. Parents, are you doing that? Are you passing on your faith? Are you pa passing on your beliefs? And we give other things to our children. Are you passing on that that is most important? Are you? How do you do it? By telling your story. Do you ever tell your children what God has done in your life? I mean, just sit down with them and tell them what God has done in your life. See, I, I, I rehearsed the story about my son when he was a baby and needed surgery, but we didn't have insurance, didn't have money, none of that. I prayed for him, and God healed him. Now, I tell them that because I want them to know that God is a God with power. I tell them the story about when Linda and I went into ministry and we didn't have anything. There were times, literally, when we had no food in the cupboard. I had no clothes other than what I was wearing to wear. I mean, we didn't have anything, and yet God provided. And I don't tell them that as a sad story. I tell them that so they will know that God provides. 
You see, folks, it's important that if you want to instill in your children the values that you say you believe, that you tell them your story. Unfortunately, the Bible says that the, this generation was unaware of God's involvement, and so naturally they had no experience with God and probably didn't hear God when He speaks. And, you know, people run around all the time saying, well, why doesn't God say something? Folks, God does. Are you listening? God does speak. The Bible says that He speaks through creation. Psalm 19:1. the heavens are telling of the glory of God and their expanse is declaring the work of His hands. Whenever you go outside and you see the stars, you see nature, you see the beauty of this world, that speaks of a Creator. That All of creation is testifying that there's a Creator. That God created this, the beauty of creation. The Bible, the Scripture says in Psalm 119, Thy word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. God will speak to you through His Word. He speaks to us through circumstances. Paul was spoken to from God through the thorn that was in his flesh. God spoke to him. Maybe you're going through something. Maybe it's positive. Maybe it's negative. Maybe it's hurtful. Maybe it's helpful. Whatever it is, but something's happening in your life. God wants to speak to you through that circumstance. He speaks to us through judgment. In fact, I wonder, you know, if we're absolutely spiritually tone deaf whenever we see the things that are going on in our world and, and uh, we continue to act as we do. I, I'm praying, Jack, I might have to have you back, but we, we definitely need revival. We need the move of God in our midst because we are, we are so far away from God in, as a country. We need a move of God. The characteristics I see of the second generation is that unaware of God's involvement, sometimes unwilling to hear when God speaks. Thirdly and quickly, just a word to the next generation, to the young generation, to the, gener- the generation that's coming now, you young guys. What kind of generation are you going to lead? What's your legacy going to be? What's, are you going to be like the generation of Joshua? Or are you going to leave a generation that, like, that followed him? What will your generation, what will your legacy be? How can you leave a godly legacy? How can your generation be a godly generation? Well, first of all, and very quickly, make sure that your commitment is genuine. Because if it is not genuine, hear me, if it is not genuine, it will not be long-lasting. Look at verse number 17. And yet they did not listen to their judges, for they played the harlot after other gods and bowed themselves down to them. They turned aside quickly from the way in which their fathers had walked in obeying the commandments of the Lord. They did not do as their fathers. They turned aside Quickly, If your commitment is not genuine, if it is not real, it will not be long-lasting. You remember when 9-11 occurred and how attendance in our churches was increased, I think, by 40%? What happened? George Barner wrote, I was among those who fully expected to see an intense spiritual reaction to the terrorist attack. The fact that we saw no lasting impact from the most significant act of war against our country on our own soil says something about the spiritual complacency of the American public. 
If your commitment, listen, if your commitment is not real, it will not be long-lasting if it isn't real. And sometimes our commitment is based on external pressures. And when it's based on external pressures, if it is not real, it will not last. For instance, there are some people who respond to God out of fear. I've been to the hospitals before where people are in the hospital, they're about to die, and... Um, and, boy, I mean, they make all kinds of commitment to God. Oh, I tell you, if I get out of here, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to serve the Lord. I'm going to teach a Sunday school class. I'm going to be, I'm even going to tithe. And I say, well, Lord, raise him up. <laughs> and yet, as soon as he gets out, you don't see him again. Why? Because he's just scared. I mean, there was not a commitment. He was just, he was just scared and responding to that. There are some people who respond to their commitments based on convenience. It's a convenient thing. There are some people who make an emotional commitment. That's not real. I mean, I'm not saying that emotion is not real. I'm saying that there are some people who simply respond to an emotional situation, and sometimes it's not genuine. It's nothing but emotion. It's not spiritual. It's nothing but emotion. Not in all cases, but in some cases. How, then, can your commitment be real? Three words. First of all is repentance. David Smith said repentance is what makes religion more than ritual. Folks, if our commitment is going to be genuine, if your commitment is going to be real, there's going to have to be real repentance. Real repentance. Lord, I have sinned and I'm sorry and forgive me. And the word repent means a change of mind that produces a change of direction. I'm going one direction, now then I go another direction. Second thing is relationship. Establish a real relationship with God. And the third word is remembrance. Remember what God has done. Remember his goodness. Sir Thomas More wrote, The world does not need so much to be informed as to be reminded. Well, there are some of you who are first-generation believers, and you're trying to serve the Lord and love the Lord and pass on what you believe. That's wonderful. God bless you. Some of you second-generation, and uh, you're, maybe you're doing good, maybe you're not. But here's the thing that's important. Well, no matter where you are, here's the thing that's important. Folks, God has no grandchildren. Grandchildren are wonderful. I have five. God has no grandchildren. You're either his child or you're not. Now, what is your relationship with God? I mean, genuinely, honestly. What is your relationship with God? What will your generation be? After you are gone, what will you leave behind? I read this again because this is the verse that really captured my attention as I was reading. Verse 10. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers, and there arose another generation after them, who did not know the Lord, nor yet the work which he had done for Israel. What about you? Every generation, every person must decide who is their God, and you will do that. He said, well, I'm not going to make a decision. Yes, you are. By not deciding, you have decided. Who is your God? Are you willing to commit your life to Jesus Christ? I pray that if you have never done that, that you will today. Our Father and God, we come to a time to extend your invitation and ask, Lord, your blessings upon it. I pray that you would draw people unto yourself. I pray, Father, for those people who need to be a part of a church home, that they would feel welcome here. pray that you would bring them. But, Lord, bless this invitation that Jesus might be glorified, in whose name I pray. Amen. In just a moment, we're going to stand.
choir is going to sing. We extend an invitation. The staff will be here. My friend, if you never committed your life to Jesus, would you do so today? Would you today? If you're looking for a church home, my doors are open. We'd love to have you as a part of our family. You come. I'll greet you as you do. Let's stand together as they sing.